So, Exodus 14. And I was looking at this. One of the things that really comes to mind over and over is deliverance. Like, don't you love stories, true stories of deliverance? I love those. I, I could read biblical stories of deliverance all day long. Why? Because it reminds me that God can deliver his kids in spaces where there looks like there's no hope. Right? Who here loves to be hopeless? No one. Okay, no one. No one. Okay. No one. Uh, we don't like to be in a place where we can't see any possibilities. We just do not like that. Remember, the children of Israel, they just got delivered out of slavery. And here they are, mountain range, mountain range, Egyptians, Red Sea, trapped. They're surrounded. And so just imagine it. We can point them out and be like, you know what, these guys are whiners. But if you're in the same situation, life or death, you just got free from slavery. All of a sudden, why would God lead you from, free, you know, from slavery to freedom and then make you trapped right here? We're about to get killed. And so I'm sure some of them were questioning and wondering, like, what is going on? As we'll see, we know. They were like, what in the world is happening here? Why did you even save us out of there if we're about to die? You know, at my secular do uh, job, we do these daily morning meetings. They're called huddles on Microsoft Teams. And uh, we update everyone in the company on what we did the day before and the goals that we have today. <clears throat> well, there's an area on the program that's called stuck. It's called stuck. It's an area to type in what is stopping you from progressing toward your goals. Or maybe it's someone else in the company you're waiting for to get you that document so that you can proceed. So you put their name in there and go, I'm stuck because of this person, right? And um, you fill the stuck items out so to figure out how to get unstuck. In life, there are moments and even seasons where you may feel stuck. But here's the glorious part. Even when we don't see a way out or through, God will make a way. We, we just sang that. God will make a way. You may not see the way in the middle of your stuckness, okay? <laughs> but God will clear a path. Right? One door closes behind you, psh, shuts, you know, season over, thing over, whatever. The door in front of you has still yet to open, and you're standing there in the middle. You ever feel like that? Like, why isn't this open yet? I'm just standing here. So what do you do in the, what do you do in the hallway? Well, you pray. You stay in God's word. You trust him. You don't worry. You wait and have faith. You rely on God's sovereignty. The reality is you may feel stuck, but you never are. As a believer, as a Christian, you're never stuck. Even when you're at a standstill, God is still working on you. It's just a matter of you believing that and me believing that. It's just a matter of you trusting that when enemies and temptations seem to surround you, God will make a way of escape. You might not see it now, but he will. So let's pray, and then we'll look at uh, Exodus 14, 15. Well, Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this, uh, this night, Lord, this time to get in your word. We just pray that you would... Uh, just speak to our hearts, Lord, that you would work in our body of believers, you know, corporately as a church, Lord, but also individually as we're in our walks with you in different stations and lots in life, different seasons, Lord. But we just pray you meet us exactly where we're at, Lord. You always do. So speak to us tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. So verse 15 says, And the Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the children of Israel to go forward. But lift up your rod and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, and the children of Israel shall go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. 
and I indeed will harden the hearts of the Egyptians, and they shall follow them. So I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over all his army, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, when I have gained honor for myself over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. So here God leads his children across the Red Sea. God's instructions to Moses were, stop, basically, surmising, paraphrasing, stop praying and start doing. Right? Why, why do you cry to me? Notice something here. Before the people, Moses was full of faith. But before God, Moses cried out in desperate prayer. And so now Moses wasn't a hypocrite. He had to show confidence before the nation to encourage their faith. So he had to gain strength from God so as to look strong in the Lord for the people. Now he wasn't faking it. He really was gaining strength. He was crying in desperation to the Lord, but he was the example of God to the people. And so there's a time to pray. Really, there is. We know that. There's a time to pray. Pray without ceasing. Pray always. But there's also a time to act. And this next statement may sound strange, but it's true. It can actually be Don't stone me with rocks. It can actually be against God's will to stop doing and to only pray. You know, this this was a time for action, basically. You know, and Moses could pray along the way, but it's time to move forward. Believers are called to wait on certain and specific promises. Don't get me wrong, but we are never called to remain perpetually idle. There's a time to pray, and there's a time to act. I I love what... uh, Charles Spurgeon said about this, he said, there is a time for praying, there's also a time for holy activity. He said, there is a time for prayer, but now and then, even prayer must take a secondary place. James wrote, faith without works is alive and active and great. No, faith without works is what? Dead, it's dead. Dead means dead in the Greek. It's dead, it's not alive, nothing. We can have faith and we can pray, but without works, without actions, our faith is dead and inactive. There's a time to pray and there's a time to plow. There's a time to pray and there's a time to plow. Yes, always pray, but don't. Here's what maybe some people can tend to do. They can use prayer as an excuse to do nothing. You know what I'm saying? Like, oh yeah, I'll pray about it. Oh, have you prayed about stepping up in that, in that way, in that, you know, in that area, in that calling? Oh, yeah, still praying about it. Oh, really? It's been 10 years. I'm, 10 more years, maybe. I don't know. I'm praying. They can use prayer as an excuse to not walk in their calling, or to not serve the Lord, or to not do what God's calling them to do. Yeah, praying about it. Sometimes the Lord will call us to action, and we go, I'll pray about it. God says, no, get up, move forward in that. Go. <laughs> Grab the rod, stretch it out over the waters, and watch me do a miracle. When God calls, we need to answer, listen, and obey. Spiritual inaction is what the enemy wants us to have. He loves that. Because if we're not serving God, we're not a threat to the enemy. He loves, oh man, there's so many Christians in this world who are just reading their Bible but doing nothing. The enemy loves that. Because you're not having an impact on anyone. Maybe it's speaking to you, great, but we, we take in and then we give out. And so you're not being effective for eternity if we're just taking in and taking in and taking in. So what does he do? He tells Moses, lift up your rod, stretch out your hand, you know. So as we see, these were not complicated instructions from the Lord. He didn't, you know, play a game with Moses to be like, try to figure it out, buddy. No, God often makes it clear what he wants us to do. The hard part sometimes is doing it. 
is taking those steps of faith and following through because, man, that body of water looks like it'll drown me. That looks scary. These were simple instructions <coughs> Excuse me. connected to a mighty miracle. Simple instructions connected to a mighty miracle. One small faith step can lead to God greatly working. So the rod of Moses did not perform the miracle. It wasn't the rod that performed the miracle. God used the rod or the object to do great things. God is behind these great things. Right? He could have just done it, but he wanted Moses to do something, to take action, to stretch out his arm, to be part of it, to take that step of faith. Moses was used by God, and the people would see this, actually. God, you know, he works through us so he can get all the glory. And so it says, then the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. God used the miracle of parting the Red Sea to speak to Egypt as much as he used it to speak to Israel. God used each unseen victory. He uses each unseen victory in our life to tell other unseen enemies of his power and ability to work in and through frail humanity. This, again, it goes back to your testimony, really. Share with others how God has radically worked in your life. This will encourage the hearts of other believers. You know, when I was a new believer, uh, hearing the testimonies of mature believers really encouraged my heart. I couldn't get enough. It gave me hope. I'm like, wow, you were like that, and now you're like this? <laughs> like, God took you from there, and, and now you're here? Wow, it's amazing. Tell people the good news about how God has worked and changed your heart and your life. So what happens? Well, in 19, it says, And the angel of God, who went before the camp of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud went from before them and stood behind them. So it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel. Thus it was a cloud and darkness to the one, and it gave light by night to the other, so that the one did not come near the other all that night. So God neutralizes the Egyptian army with fire. God sent a specifically commissioned angel and the pillar of cloud as a barrier between Israel and the pursuing Egyptian army. God protected Israel from the Egyptian attack until the way was made through the Red Sea. God often places a barrier between us and the enemy. We'll never know, I wish we did, but we'll never know this side of heaven just how much the Lord protects us on a regular basis. We just get a little glimpse of it here and there, like, thank you, Lord, so much more than that. But sure, we have struggles, but it would be so much worse if God took his hand of protection off of us. And so it says it, it, it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel. So the same pillar that prevented the Egyptians from uh, their pursuit of Israelites was the same pillar that protected their lives for a while. Like, if they submitted to the Lord, they would have been spared. When we obey God, we're under his divine protection. It says, thus it was a cloud of darkness to the one, and it gave light of night to the other. So the pillar was a source of darkness to the Egyptians, but a source of light to the Hebrews. This was the glory of God working. It's the double nature of the glory of God in salvation and judgment, which later appears frequently as we're continuing through the Old Testament. But this is the clearest depiction of the double nature of the glory of God in salvation and judgment. 
It's like the word of God has a dark side to sinners. Same with the gospel of Jesus. You know, sinners are afraid of spiritual things. They're like, oh, you know, have you, has anyone ever done this to you? You know, <laughs> right? And it's like, they're like, oh, you're one of those, you know? They're scared they're, because they know where they're at in life. They're suppressing the truth and the righteousness, but they don't want to deal with it because they know they're in deep sin. They know they're not living right. But unbelievers, they steer clear of the things of God because they know they're living in darkness, but they don't want to change. A word from God can bring conviction to the one in sin and comfort to the one who is blameless. So the word of God causes us to constantly ask, well, how's my heart? And that's a good thing, you know, because we don't want to get offended and, and be like, God, why did you tell me that? Like, God, God convicts us and he comforts us. He does all the work through his word, so it's a good thing to be cut to the heart. It's a good thing to be like, okay, I need to change my way. It's a good thing to be, to realize you're uncompromised and have those hidden secret sins compromised, whatever that you need to let go of, that you need to give up to the Lord, that you need to repent of. That's a good thing. God's constantly doing surgery on our hearts, on our lives. So in verse 21, it says, then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all the night and made the sea into dry land and the waters were divided. So the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea on the dry ground, and the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. So the waters of the Red Sea are parted, and the children of Israel are receded, and the children of Israel cross over on safely on dry ground. Moses stretched out his hand over the seas. Other passages in Exodus 13 and 15 identify this body of water as the Red Sea. The Hebrew word means reed sea, R-E-E-D. This was a lake region north of the Gulf of Suez, made up of the Bitter Lakes and Lake Timsa. The reed sea could have been the modern-day Lake Serbanis, but the crossing was in this area because the Israelites found themselves in the wilderness of Shur after crossing the Red Sea. So no, no one knows for certain exactly where the crossing was. Every flood and drought season, geography changes. What can be surmised is that the width was wide enough to let a large group cross, and there was at least 10 feet of water to drown the Egyptians. There have been speculations of, you know, the where by many scholars, but let's just look at the why and the what. Like, That's what we want to do. We want to bombard the text of Scripture with questions in order to find sincere answers. You know, it is fun to imagine certain specifics, but if it is a gray area in Scripture, like, we don't want to try to make it black and white. Well, this is what it is, you know. But I think it's fun to ponder and think of these things, but we do know a lot of details from the Word, right? We do know a lot about God and about how to live, how to act, how to be saved, all those things. But so it says, the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night and made the sea into dry land and the waters were divided. This is interesting because a Los Angeles Times article from 1994 agrees that the Red Sea crossing was entirely possible. Los Angeles Times. You know, it's interesting to see such an article in such a newspaper, but it was. I'm going to read it to you. Los Angeles Times, 1994. It says, sophisticated computer calculations indicate that the biblical parting of the Red Sea, said to have allowed Moses and the Israelites to escape from bondage in Egypt, could have occurred precisely as the Bible describes it. Because of the peculiar geography of the northern end of the Red Sea, 
Researchers report Sunday in the Bulletin of the American Meteorological Society, a moderate wind blowing constantly for about 10 hours could have caused the sea to recede about a mile and the water level to drop about 10 feet, leaving dry land in the area where many biblical scholars believe the crossing occurred. Says it's important to note that this research does not prove that the crossing of the Red Sea happened at any particular place speculated on in the research, only that natural phenomenon exists which God may have used to part the waters and allow Israel to exit from the Egyptian army. Even if God used natural phenomenon, it was still a great miracle, it said. <laughs> so it's pretty amazing. So the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. And I want to turn, if you have your Bibles, uh, or look at the screen, but I want to turn to Psalm 77, verse 16 to 20, which gives more detail of the course of events of the Red Sea. Psalm 77, verses 16 to 20. And this is the thing I love about the Bible. The Bible is the best commentary. It's better than any commentaries. It is the best commentary. The Bible is the best commentary on the Bible. See, we must not just focus on one verse or one chapter or one book of the Bible, like we must look at each event in a context of the whole of Scripture. And this is how we keep everything in context. So Psalm 77, verse 16, it says, The waters saw you, O God. The waters saw you. They were afraid. The depths also trembled. The clouds poured out water. The sky sent out a sound. Your arrows also flashed about. The voice of your thunder was in the whirlwind, the lightnings up of the world, the earth trembled and shook. Your way was in the sea, your path in the great waters, and your footsteps were not known. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. It's an amazing description of this event and its confirmation that God does what he says. He's not going to leave you trapped. He's not going to leave you stuck. He's not going to be like, you know, I freed you out of slavery, and now you're free, and now you're surrounded, and now you're going to die. Like, he's not going to do that, right? God always makes a way of escape. So what happens? Well, in verse 23, it says, And the Egyptians pursued and went after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, his horsemen. Now it came to pass in the morning, watch, that the Lord looked down upon the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud, and he troubled the army of the Egyptians. And he took off their chariot wheels, so that they drove them with difficulty. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from the face of Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Verse 26, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the waters may come back upon the Egyptians on their chariots and on their horsemen. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and when the morning appeared, the sea returned to its full depth while the Egyptians were fleeing into it. So the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. And then the waters returned and covered the chariots, the horsemen, and all the army of Pharaoh, that it came into the sea after them, not so much as one of them remained. So God troubles the Egyptian army and they are drowned. He took off their chariot wheels. So God worked on the side of Israel against the Egyptians. It says that the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. God has power to overthrow those things that come against you. He has power to take the wheels off and slow the enemy down so you can escape, so you can get out. And I love it because Moses followed through. He could have been like, well, I don't want to hurt anyone. But he just said, yes, Lord. 
You know, we want to make excuses. We want to be like, well, I don't know about this. Well, let me reason with you for a little bit. No, no reason. Just do what I say. Okay, Lord. You don't see Moses reasoning with God. You see him just saying, yes, Lord. He says, stretch out your hand over the sea that the waters may come back upon the Egyptians. So the power of God was at work, clearly. <clears throat> Moses had to stretch out his hand, but, the God, but God did the work. Moses' faith initiated God's power. Moses didn't strive. All he had to do was... And God did the, the heavy lifting, if you will. He did the great miracle. The Lord often tells us to take a step of faith, and then we're going to see God work. God's not going to be like, you know what, I'll, I'll give you three works if you take one step of faith afterwards. Like, sometimes we do that, right? We test God, the whole fleece thing. It's like, God, if you do this, 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 and this, exactly like I'm thinking, then I'll probably serve you, like, for, like, a year. Or so, and it's like, oh, God, you did five, but not six things, you know? And it's like, we test God. It's like, no. The Lord often tells us to just take a step of faith, and then we'll see him work. It's all about, again, active faith. God often uses people to take part in his miraculous work, and sometimes we don't see his works because someone doesn't stretch out their hand and take a step of faith. So with this work of God through Moses, God showed the whole nation that Moses was their chosen leader. You know, and not, you know, it says not so much as one of them remains. So the deliverance at the Red Sea really became a turning point in Israel's history. After this point, Pharaoh and the Egyptians never troubled them again, obviously. But it took a mighty miracle and the power of God for the enemies to stop. Moses wasn't like, I can do it myself. God, I'm good. I don't need you. No, Moses needed God to take care and protect him. God had to take them all out. Some say Pharaoh didn't, you know, didn't drown. Only his armies did. Some say that. But a Jewish historian, uh, Flavius Josephus, wrote, there was not one man left to be a messenger of this calamity to the rest of the Egyptians. This really goes back to Exodus 14, 14. The Lord will fight for you. You shall hold your peace. So verse 29, finishing it up, it says, But the children of Israel had walked on dry land in the midst of the sea, and the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. So the Lord saved Israel that day out, <clears throat> out of the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. What a sight. Thus Israel saw the great work which the Lord had done in Egypt, so the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. This is a good point. This is a turning point. This is where the children of Israel actually believed in God, right? They were like, they believed in Jehovah. They're like, yes, Lord. So another act of redemption on Israel's behalf. Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. And at this point, Israel's deliverance from Egypt was complete, if you will. You know, an oppressed people are slow to believe that they are free while their oppressors live. God wanted Israelites to know that they were safe. One commentator said this. Somehow the sight of those dead bodies was the concrete sign that salvation and the new way of life for Israel were now assured. It was now assured. This principle can apply to our deliverance as well. Like our old life is deemed dead and we have new life in Christ. And you, you think about it, like sometimes you look at your, your past and your old friends and you're like, thank you, Lord, <laughs> right? I mean, it's like you're not judging them, but they're like, oh, look, save them too. But you're like, thank you, I'm not there anymore, not doing those things anymore. Thank you for saving me. And it's actually surmised that the Israelites plundered 
these dead Egyptian soldiers and use their weapons against battles with the Amorites and the Malachites and other, other nations. So, so the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hands of the Egyptians. Amazing. God's faithfulness is demonstrated and his power is seen. The Lord is in the deliverance business. He saves, he delivers, he rescues, he's good. And so the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. Don't you wish you could just stay like this? <laughs> they were just like, fear the Lord. And they're like, let's go, God, for the rest of our lives. We're just going to serve you. That would be great, right? That'd be great if we could do that. But sometimes we let distractions and the different things come in and we feel trapped and we start to freak out. And when God says, be, just be still, we're like, no, no, I need to get out of here. <laughs> just be still. But this is the result that God intended. Unfortunately, Israel didn't stay in the place of honoring the Lord. The deliverance of Passover and the miracle of the Red Sea go together. Like if it weren't for the victory at the Red Sea, the redemption at Passover would have meant nothing. But they wouldn't have made it to the Red Sea without the miracle of God's redemption, you know, at Passover. In the same way, the redemption of the cross, right, would mean nothing without the miracle of the resurrection. So the two works of deliverance must go hand in hand. One scholar wrote, he said, the, the new nation walked through a threatened death toward a new life in a consciousness of the presence and the power of Jehovah from which they could not escape. This is the best realization. The best realization is that God possesses the power. We're just a weak, empty, broken vessel that he says, just take a little step in there. Take a little step in there, priest, you know, in the Jordan River, psh, the waters recede. Moses, stretch out your hand, the waters recede. Take one little step of faith, one little action, and God will do the rest. God possesses the power. Even the faith that we have has been given to us from God. You each have a measure of faith given of God. So we can't even claim, that's my faith. My faith is so strong. No, that's the faith that God gave me. It always goes to glorifying him. And I would just say, God possesses the power. Let him be sovereign and listen for his voice. Follow his leading. Take those steps. Stretch out your arm. Do what he tells you tells you to do you don't have to reason with him i would suggest not to don't hesitate just be like yes lord sounds crazy but let's go and he'll protect you he'll lead you he'll guide you amen